The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Song of Solomon. Yes, you heard that correctly. Song of Solomon, Old Testament. For the last nine weeks, we have been working our way through Ephesians chapter 5, and we've been looking at God's instructions for men and women in the context of marriage, for husbands and wives. We've entitled this series, The Master's Plan for Marriage, and we want to know what God's heart for marriage is and what he has designed this wonderful institution to be like. So we've been taking our time, slowly working our way through Ephesians chapter 5, and we have found that first and foremost, marriage is not about us. It's not about us. It's not about our wants, our desires, our pleasures, our passions, getting what we want from our spouse or our happiness or our needs. It's not ultimately about us. Marriage is not about us. Marriage is about God. And it's an opportunity for his glory to be put on display and his purposes to be put on display in the context of the marriage relationship. And that happens, we said, through our study of Ephesians chapter 5, when wives recognize their roles in the context of marriage and husbands recognize their role in the context of marriage. And we said from our study of Ephesians 5 that God has called wives to be those helpers to her husband, to submit to him, to honor him, to respect him, to be his helper, to be on his teammate, to care for him, to make her home the primary place of ministry where she gives her best energies to her husband and her children we found as well that the husband is called to be the leader, the, the spiritual leader of his family, the protector, the provider, the leader, where he functions as head in the family, where he sets the spiritual tone for the family, where he loves his wife and cares for his children and nurtures them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and loves his wife in such a way that his love for her is sacrificial and it's sanctifying and it's sensitive and it's steadfast. And when a wife conducts herself that way, when a husband conducts himself his way, the women can be the women, the men can be the men, and God is glorified as Christ is exalted in the context of marriage. We said at the end of Ephesians 5, there's that wonderful statement that says that marriage is a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery because there was something undisclosed about marriage until the time of Christ. And so all marriages before Christ were pointing ahead to the real marriage, which is Christ and the church. And so when we as husbands love our wives, we are a picture of Christ. And wives, when you come up under your husband and you submit to them and you respect and honor them and you're the helpers that God has called you to be, then you reflect God's heart for the church. And so there's this wonderful, mysterious picture that is painted in the context of marriage. Well, this morning I want to wrap up our series on marriage. You wondered when it would come to an end. Uh, We come to an end this morning. And I believe one of the best ways to do that is by looking at one of the best illustrations of marriage in all of Scripture. In the Song of Solomon. Now, I need to tell you singles who have been so patient and so gracious in allowing us to preach on the issue of marriage for now 10 weeks. I I, want to honor you by preaching a message on singles two weeks from today. All right. So because you've been so gracious to just be with us through this series, I want to preach on God's heart for singles uh, after Easter. So you know what God's heart is for you. So we'll do that on April 27. But this morning, I want to focus our attention on this Old Testament book that I believe provides a perfect summary and illustration of what marriage should be like. 
It is a picture painted for us with words, with similes and metaphors and figurative language and poetic speech. It's full of representations and comparisons and symbols and all kinds of imaginative language. It's full of feeling. It's full of emotion. It's full of expression. And what you have here in the Song of Solomon is a picture, an illustration of what deep, genuine, biblical love looks like between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Perhaps there's no better book to go to in the whole scriptures than this book because you see here the kind of biblical romantic love that should exist between a husband and a wife. It's a, it's a book that paints for us this beautiful picture of the right relationship between a man and a woman. And I find it very interesting that God in his sovereignty and in his purposes has devoted an entire book of the Bible to this topic. You ever think about that? God in his infinite wisdom and his infinite plan has given us an entire book devoted solely to the purpose of biblical love between a man and a woman. It's not a book that we preach on. I've never preached on Song of Solomon. Pray for me. I've never done a message on this book. It's not a book that we go to very often. It is a book that's not even referenced in the New Testament. No New Testament writer references this book. And there's no really deep theological truths that are presented in this book. And yet, it is still a book that illustrates for us the beauty and the sanctity of intimacy and love and romance within the husband and wife relationship. And it extols for us the love between a man and a woman who are united in marriage. So I find it compelling that God would write an entire book about that topic. Don't you? Isn't that interesting? Of all the topics that he could pick to write an entire book about, he picks the topic of marriage and writes an eight-chapter book on the issue of love and romance between a man and a woman. I believe it's important for us to understand this because we need to understand, as we said a number of weeks ago, that God has designed marriage and family to be the primary relationship. It is the basic building block of any society and how your marriage goes, your family goes, and how your family goes, our society goes. And so we have said that marriage is essentially the basic building block of any society. It's the basic molecular structure. It's the foundational relationship of all relationships that exist. Every relationship that you have flows out of your relationship in the context of your marriage and your family. So for all those instructions in the scriptures about marriage, God has placed a premium on the marriage relationship. And so it shouldn't surprise us that God has devoted an entire book to that topic. That's one reason why I think it's important that God has written us a book about this topic. But I think it's also important, as we said a number of weeks ago, that marriage is under attack. That marriage and families are under attack today. That Satan has set his crosshairs against the family, against your family, against your marriage. Satan is out to destroy the family. This is what he's been doing from the beginning. His first temptation was in the context of the family, the marriage relationship. And he's been doing the same thing ever since Genesis chapter 3. He has been seeking to destroy marriages and destroy the families. He's out to assault them to destroy the roles of men and women, to destroy and disrupt how families conduct themselves and how they operate. He enlists his entire demonic forces and the secular and worldly ideologies he throws against your family and my family. 
We looked a number of weeks ago at the ways in which he does this, or the, the consequences of this, rather. We saw adultery, which is rampant in our society, affairs which are rampant, immorality which is, our, which is rampant, TV shows which portray the destruction of the family, cohabitation has become the norm rather than the exception, abortion is a major political and moral issue in our culture, open marriages are becoming more and more acceptable, divorce is rampant, same-sex marriage is becoming a hot-button issue and being accepted by our society as the norm. And so all of these are expressions of the way that Satan is going after the family. And you need to be aware of it. So how do you protect yourself? How do you protect yourself from those attacks? I think one of the best things you can do is study the Song of Solomon. And you can see in living illustration the kind of relationship that exists between and should exist between a man and a woman and a husband and wife. And so maybe you're here this morning and your marriage is a little dry. Maybe it's not got the life in it that it once had. Maybe you're lacking some of the desire, some of the the longing for each other, some of that intimate, close relationship. Maybe you just don't even enjoy being together much anymore. You endure each other. you, You put up with each other. You've fallen into a routine. What's the answer? What's the answer to a marriage like that? It's the Song of Solomon. As, as, as Solomon here details for us the kind of relationship that should exist and is possible when Christ is the focus of that marriage. And so I've entitled this message, Biblical Romantic Love, How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. All right? This is how you keep affairs from, from threatening your relationship and your marriage. This book serves as a prophylaxis. You know what a prophylaxis is? It's any measure designed to preserve health and prevent the spread of disease. And Song of Solomon is a prophylaxis for your marriage. It promotes its health, it promotes its, its growth, its maturity, and it prevents the spread of disease and pursuing intimacy outside of your marriage. Let me introduce this book to you. Some of the controversy surrounding this book. It has been the victim of many false interpretations. Some commentator has said that this is the most difficult and mysterious book in the entire Bible. It's a hard book to outline. It's a hard book to interpret at times. It's a hard book to understand and who's talking where and when. And it's been the victim or the subject of numerous false interpretations. One of those methods has been the allegorical interpretive method where those who have taken this approach have claimed that there's no historical basis for this book, that it's just a story. It didn't really happen. These weren't real people. It was just kind of a story that was made up by someone to illustrate some deeper, more secret and mysterious truths. This is the allegorical approach. Origen, for example, wrote that the beloved's reference to her being dark-skinned, which we'll look at in just a moment, means that the church is ugly with sin. And then a later reference to her being spiritually beautiful and lovely is a statement to the church being cleansed from her sin. Is that what this book's about? Others have said that the cooing of the doves in chapter 2 speaks of the preaching of the apostles. And some have suggested that the eating of honey and drinking of wine in chapter 5 is an illustration of the Lord's Supper. Well, I don't see that anywhere. And so this has been the allegorical approach to interpreting this book where it's just a story made up to illustrate more profound, more deep truths like God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. That's one method. There's another method that's been used here. It's called the typical approach, where it views this as a historical account and actual 
thing that actually happened with real people, but meant to illustrate deeper truths. So the first one says it's not real and it promotes mysterious truths. The second one says it was real with real people and is designed to communicate specifically Christ's relationship with the church. The problem with that is, number one, the church was a mystery. Never understood in the Old Testament until Christ came and said, I will build my church. That was a mystery prior to that point. And so there's nothing in the Old Testament that would indicate that the writer of the Song of Solomon, Solomon, has any inclination to communicate Christ's heart for the church. It's not a statement about Christ's love for the church. It is the third interpretation, the right interpretation, a statement of a husband's love for his wife. That's the purpose of the book. It's not allegorical. It's not typical. The purpose of the book is to communicate a true account of mutual love and commitment and affection and marital harmony between a husband and between a wife. We know that Solomon wrote this. We know that he is the husband in this book. And the woman described here is known as the Shulamite from a city called Shunem in southern Galilee. We don't know a lot about her. We're not really quite sure who she is. Some think that she was Pharaoh's daughter, but there's little evidence to support that. Some think that she was maybe Abishag, the, the young maiden who came and ministered to David in the final days of his life. But there's no evidence to indicate that, simply that she also was from Shunem. Most likely, the woman described here in the Song of Solomon was an unknown woman from the city of Shunem whose family had been hired or employed by Solomon to tend the vineyard. So that's who we think she was. And the question that's probably burning in your mind right now is, how could Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, write a biblical account of true love? If you're not thinking that way, you should be asking yourself that question. How could a guy who had a thousand wives or concubines write a story, an account that's in the pages of Scripture about what biblical romantic love really is? First Kings chapter 11 says that Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not associate with them. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God said to the people of Israel, before they came into the land, he said, you shall not intermarry with them, nor shall you give your daughters to their sons, nor take your daughters, their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. God gave them that warning hundreds of years before. Solomon didn't listen. He violated that principle and took to himself numerous foreign women in his harem. And added to that was the, the violation of the fact that he took more than one. First Kings chapter 11 says, as we just noted, seven, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. God had also given some warnings to the kings. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says, Neither shall he, the king, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. God knew that what would happen is if a king got into power and he got into authority, he would be tempted to take multiple wives to himself. That's exactly what Solomon did. Taking a thousand. And it says his heart was turned away. So how could Solomon... With this harem of wives, 
write a book about marital harmony and unity and the oneness of marriage that should exist between one man and one woman. I think Solomon is writing here about his first wife, his first love, the woman who was the wife of his youth. And I believe he is detailing for us here before he fell into the sin of polygamy, exactly what marital faithfulness and marital love looks like in the context of this marriage relationship. He wrote it down. He penned it as one of his songs. You remember he wrote 1005 songs and this is the song of songs. The Song of Solomon. It is the best song, the, 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 the most wonderful song that he has written. It's the best of the best. And it's comprised of eight chapters. Each chapter detailing a different aspect of the marriage between Solomon and his first wife, the Shulamite. What I love about this book is that it presents for us biblical romantic love in a proper, balanced way. Now, let me say this. I think it's important to understand that when you start talking about the intimacy between a husband and a wife and the closeness that should exist between them, you can go to one of two extremes. You can either go towards one extreme of promiscuity or another extreme of prudishness, right? Anytime you start talking about this love between a husband and a wife, our society takes it one of two ways. The first way is on promiscuity where it becomes something vile, where what God intended to be between the marital union, between a husband and a wife, our society perverts it. It turns it into something vile. It turns it into something that's lustful instead of loving. And that's what we see in our society all over the place. Our society takes what God has created to be beautiful and wonderful amongst a husband and a wife and the unity that they enjoy, and it perverts it. It twists it. It makes it something sinful. The other extreme is prudishness. Well, we don't ever talk about this. We don't ever engage in this topic. We don't ever even talk about the kind of love that should exist between a husband and a wife and maybe some of the more specific ways that it manifests itself in their relationship and their physical intimacy. But Solomon is not like that. God didn't stutter when he wrote this book. He didn't blush. He wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't prudish about this book. He presents this kind of intimacy between a husband and a wife in a very tactful, appropriate, tasteful, never crass manner. That's what I love about this book. It's perfectly balanced. It presents the kind of love that should exist between them and the physical intimacy that's even there, but it does so very appropriately, very tactfully, and very tastefully. So, What is this book about? I believe it's a message that we need to hear today. In a day of disposable marriages, in a day when when we tend to throw marriage away, when the vows taken are not really considered to be permanent vows or obligating themselves to those vows, we need to hear the message of the Song of Solomon. Even though Solomon himself went off and went astray and was not faithful to his vows to his first wife, we still have here a divinely inspired account of the kind of love between a husband and a wife. God put this book in the Bible. And so we need to understand what it is. What I want to do is just briefly survey this book with you this morning. We're not going to do a whole series on it. We're just going to survey the book of Song of Solomon. And we're going to draw some words from this book that describe for us biblical romantic love and how to affair proof your marriage. Four words 
that I want to show you demonstrated here in the book of the Song of Solomon that I believe will help you understand God's heart for your marriage and serve as a means and a prophylaxis against affairs or other things happening in your marriage. What made this such a great marriage? First, number one, attraction. Number two, affection. Number three, devotion. Number four, reconciliation. Let's look at these. Number one, first, attraction. What made this such a great marriage? Attraction. There was an attraction between Solomon and his wife. Attraction that was mutual, that was one for the other. Husband towards wife, wife towards husband. It's an attraction that characterizes their entire relationship from courtship to wedding to marriage. This isn't just some flippant infatuation that happened to young people. No, this was a, an attraction that lasted for the course of their marriage. They're head over heels in love with each other. And you can see it portrayed from the very beginning of their courtship all the way through to the maturing of their marriage. How does this love story begin? Look over in chapter 8, verse 11. Just hold your finger in chapter 1 because we're going to start there. But I want you to see in chapter 8, verse 11... Probably how this love story started. It says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman, and he entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. Solomon, as king of Israel, had vineyards all over the nation. And and probably he went and frequently visited those vineyards to see how they were doing, to check up on the workers, to see how the employees were doing and caring for this vineyard. And so we presume that this was one of the vineyards that Solomon owned. He came, he took a trip, he visited this particular vineyard where this woman known as the Shulamite was working. Now go back to chapter one. Because I think that's what you see here in chapter 1. You see this woman working in a vineyard, probably as an employee or a caretaker of the vineyard that Solomon had entrusted to them. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. She says, I'm black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. She says in verse 5, I was black, which presumably refers to the fact that she was tan. She was working hard out in the vineyards. This was no well-to-do city girl. This was a hard-working country girl. And she was out in the vineyard, As an employee of Solomon, doing the hard labor, the hard work of tending this vineyard, who her brothers, it says, were over her, forcing her to work in this vineyard. She was tan from all of her hard work. In that day, that was not a desirable quality. Today, we go to suntan booths and you get yourself nice and bronzed and you go to Florida and you get more bronzed and we prize this as some sort of thing that makes you look good. Not in that day. In that day, the tan look was not in. It was the indoor look that was in where you were white. The whiter, the better. And so here's this woman who is dark, not fitting her society's expectations of what a beautiful woman looks like. She's even embarrassed about it. She's insecure about it. Verse 6 says, I have not been able to take care of my own vineyard. means her body. She was so busy in the vineyard of Solomon that she wasn't able to give the time and the attention 
and the care that she would have liked to her own self. She was insecure about it. She says in verse 6, do not stare at me. She's insecure about her tan. She doesn't want to be noticed for her dark skin. She's insecure. She's, she's feeling a little inadequate in how she looks. But that didn't keep Solomon from noticing. Solomon noticed this woman. Down in verse 9. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of bead. Now, he does hear something that most men will never get away with. He compares her to a horse. (laughs) Guys, I wouldn't recommend it. I don't think it would go over well today, but that's what he calls her. You are like my mare. You need to understand a little bit of that culture. Solomon understood something about horses. He had 40,000 of them. First Kings chapter 4 said he had 40,000 stalls of horses. He knew something about horses. He knew their beauty. He knew their strength. He knew the, the muscular creature that a horse was. And he's actually using this as a compliment. You are like my mare among the chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. And so Solomon here begins to notice this woman. He begins to notice his attraction to her. He's attracted to her looks. He's attracted to her character. And he sees her and notices her. But it's mutual. Look down in verse 12. Not only was this him attracted to her, it was her attracted to him. Verse 12, while the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. She's noticing him. She's praising him for his looks and his attractive characteristics, which were like perfume, the myrrh that, that scents up into your nose and it stays there and you can continue to, to smell it. And she was constantly thinking about him and noticing him. She says he was like a henna bush, a bush, a desert bush that has thick yellow and white flowers that, that grows only in places of oasis where there's some water. And they're pretty rare in the desert. You don't find them very often. But when you find one, you've found something that's a treasure because they're so rare. And she's saying that this is what it's like to know him. She had strong desires for him. He was a rare find in this oasis. And you can see this mutual attraction that begins to develop between husband and wife, future husband and wife. They're not married at this point. I want you to skip over to chapter 3, and I want you to see the wedding. There is a progression that takes place in this book. And in chapter 3, Solomon describes the wedding. He describes the preparation for the wedding, starting in verse 6. Look what he says in Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, 60 mighty men around it. Of all the mighty men of Israel, all of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war, each man with his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. 
Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. This describes the wedding procession. And that day, the bride would go and take, the the groom would go and take the bride to himself. And so he would travel with this procession to her home. He would take her and take him to his new place of residence, his place where the wedding would take place and where they would live. And so this is quite the procession. There are 60 men, it says, who are just there to handle the couch, the sedan, the, the, the place that would carry her to him. In addition to that, there's an entire entourage of soldiers who are marching with him The mighty men of Israel, all of them wielders of the sword, expert in war, each of them with a sword to decide. These were strong men, the valiant men, the soldiers who would protect this entourage as he takes her back to his place for the wedding. He's already a provider. He's already a protector. He spared no expense. He made the best carriage possible for her. It was made of the timbers of Lebanon, its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple fabric, its interior lovingly fitted out. This was a beautiful carriage to carry his beautiful bride for their beautiful wedding. Look how he describes her. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is his description of his bride on the wedding day. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil, and your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate. Try that one. Behind your veil, your neck is like a tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. This is Solomon's description of his bride. On their wedding day, he's attracted not only to her physical looks, but her characteristics, her nature, who she is. Look how he describes her. Verse 1, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Um, guys, don't respond that way. Honey, how's my hair look today? Like a flock of goats. <laughs> not, not what you want to do, but in that day it worked. Okay, that day it worked because the, the goats were beautiful with hair and coming down the mountains. I don't know, but it worked. <laughs> Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of them which bear twins. Their teeth were white. And there wasn't one missing. They had twins. Okay, that's what he's saying. I'm just telling you what it means. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like the slice of a pomegranate, talking about soft and little red. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Now, that's probably not a compliment in most cases, but here it's speaking of strength and and beauty, and, and it's talking about the appearance of her being awesome and majestic as King David's tower was. 
Twin, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. He's speaking of her natural beauty. See what he's doing? He's attracted to his wife. There's a, there's a physical attraction here. There's an emotional attachment here. There's a close relational attraction that takes place of him to her. But it's not just him to her. It's her to him as well. Go over to chapter 5. Let you see that this is mutual. This is not just one-sided. This is a mutual attraction. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. That's what Julie always says to me. (laughs) Actually, that's not true. His legs, verse 15, are pillars of alabaster, set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. See what she's doing? She's doing the same thing. There's a physical attraction. There's an emotional attachment. There's this attraction between the two of them. And she's just describing what what he's like. He's dazzling. Verse 10 says, dazzling and ruddy. That speaks of him as handsome. Verse 10 says he's outstanding among 10,000. He's the best of the best. His head is like gold. Verse 11, I don't think it's saying he has blonde hair. I think it's talking about his value. She, She sees value in him. Verse 11 says his locks are like clusters of dates and black as raven. Verse 12, his eyes are like doves, not talking about the shape of them, but more about the peace in them and the fact that he's stable and gentle and reflects his peaceful and gentle character. Verse 13, his cheeks are like bed of balsam. His lips, verse 13, are lilies dripping with myrrh. Verse 14, his hands are rods of gold, which speaks of them as valuable and strong. Verse 15, his legs are pillars of alabaster. They're they're strong, they're handsome, they're they're valuable like marble and gold. Verse 16, this is my beloved, and this, my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She's attracted to him. Just because he looks good? No, because there's something about his character as well. He's not harsh. He's not a tyrant. He's not a domineering husband who who constantly has his wife under him. No, he's gracious. He's gentle. He's kind. He's stable. He cares for her. And this fits perfectly with what we saw in Ephesians chapter 5. This is what a godly husband does. There's a gentleness and a tenderness. But there's also an attraction. Go over to chapter 6, verse 4. You can see it again. This is Solomon's attraction to her. Once again, chapter 6, verse 4. You're as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your temples are like slice of pomegranate. There are 60 queens and eight 
80 concubines and maidens without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. This is now well after their wedding. The wedding was in chapter Four, and now this is well after the wedding. They're into their marriage. They're into their relationship. He's still attracted to her. There's still this, this close relationship. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1, you can see it as well here. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hip are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. Guys, I'm not sure I'd try that one either, but good luck. See what he's doing? He's just going on and on and on about his attraction for her. He is captivated with her and she is captivated with him. This isn't just kind of a relationship where yeah, we're getting along and we're kind of married and we'll never get divorced and yeah, it's all good. No, there's an intimacy here. There's a fellowship here. There's a closeness here. Remember, she didn't consider herself attractive at all. She didn't fit the mold. She didn't look the way that you're supposed to look in that culture. She was tan rather than fair. But Solomon doesn't see that. He sees her natural beauty. He sees her inner beauty. And he's attracted to that. So, friends, if if you want to have a marriage that honors the Lord and truly fulfills His design, there needs to be an attraction. And we're not just talking physical. We're not just talking about, yeah, she looks good or he looks good. That's not it. There's, a, there's an emotional connection here. There's a relational connection here. There's a spiritual attraction here. And we might say that your spouse needs to be the standard of beauty. Your spouse needs to be the standard of handsomeness. Your spouse needs to be the standard. Not that other spouse. Not that person walking down the road. Your spouse. This is an important principle. And the problem is that, guys, we get in trouble particularly when we start to have straying eyes and we start to look elsewhere and we begin to imagine ourselves with someone else. And ladies, you do the same thing as well. You start to look outside your marriage for that man who could really treat you the way you deserve to be treated. But no, in the context of a biblically romantic relationship, it stays within the context of marriage. Your spouse is the standard of beauty and the standard of handsomeness and the standard of attraction. That's how you cultivate biblical romantic love. That's how you protect against an affair. Attraction. Number two, affection. Affection. You want to possess biblical romantic love and you want to guard your relationship from anything that could attack it from the outside, you need to cultivate affection for one another. And you remember when we went through Ephesians, we said that this is the kind of thing that needs to characterize our love for one another in the context of the marriage relationship. In Ephesians 5, you remember what Paul said? He said, husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own bodies, for he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, you already love yourself because you take care of yourself, you feed yourself, you give yourself rest, you drink when you need water. You exercise yourself. You take care of yourself. Now do the same thing for your wife. Treat her the appropriate way. 
your one flesh with her. To love her is to love yourself. To hate her is to hate yourself. And so Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, you ought to love your wives with the same care that you give to your own bodies because after all, you're one flesh with her. How do you do that? Paul said in Ephesians 5, you nourish and cherish her. You nourish and cherish her. You, you treat her kindly. You cherish your relationship with you, her and you nourish her. You feed her spiritually so that she grows all out of a heart of affection and love and, and kindness for her. And for the wife, remember what he said in Ephesians 5? It says in verse 33 that you are to respect your husband. So this goes both ways. Well, how do you do this? How do you respect your husband wives and how do you nourish and cherish your wives husband? It starts with affection. It starts with affection. Go back to chapter 1. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And I want you to see. I want you to see the tender affection between these two. And I want you to first notice Solomon's affection for his wife. I want you to see in verse 15. I want you to notice the terminology that he uses to describe his wife. Verse 15 of chapter 1. How... Beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Go over to chapter 2, verse 2. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Skip down to verse 10. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Go down to verse 13. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Over to chapter 4. You see the pattern here? Chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Chapter 5. Verse 2, I was asleep and my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my beautiful one. Chapter 6, verse 4. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem. Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter. Do you see the pattern? How beautiful you are, my darling. My beautiful one. There, there's a tender affection here. He is praising her. He is enjoying her. He is affectionate for her. He is gracious, gentle, kind, affirming, affectionate. He compliments her. Go back to chapter 1. I want you to see it's mutual. Chapter 1, verse 16. She says the same about him. Chapter 1, verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses, our cedars, our rafters, and cypresses. How handsome you are, my beloved. It's mutual. It's like they're almost trying to outdo each other in their affection for one another and how they communicate it. He tells her she's special. He tells her she's beautiful. He tells her about specific ways that he is attracted to her. He is specific in his praise. He is specific in his affection. Not just, hey, I like you. 
He says specifically, you mean this to me. You are this way to me. He is specific in his praise toward her. And she does the same thing. She tells him he's special. She tells him he's handsome. She tells him about specific ways that she is affectionate towards him. And what I want you to see in the midst of this is this is not a harsh relationship. This is not a a, a relationship that's marked by unkind words and criticism and put-downs and cutting remarks. They're not beating each other down with their words or their silence. They're constantly, not constantly, giving verbal digs. They're not always negative and grumpy or moody with each other. They're not always at each other's throat. They're not always throwing verbal barbs out at each other. This is a relationship that's marked by verbal praise and affirmation and affection and complimenting one another. You ever been around a couple that constantly digs each other? Oh, We've done that. We've been around couples like that. And they're constantly just throwing out verbal attacks, just kind of one-liners that just constantly run the other spouse down. That's not biblical romantic love. Biblical romantic love is an affectionate love where you compliment each other for your character, for their looks, for, for what you see attractive in them. There's affection in words. There's affection in touch. There's affection in conversation. There's affection in time spent together. In fact, twice in the book of Song of Solomon, they're seen spending time together, amongst many other times, but two specific times. Look in chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, winter's past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines. The voice of the turtle doves has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. The vines and blossom have given forth their fruits. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come along. He says, Let's go for a walk. Let's be together. Let's spend some time together. Let's go see these trees which are flourishing and the spring has come and there's, there's fruit in the garden. Let's go see them. Let's go for a walk. One other place over in chapter 7, you can see it as well. Chapter 7, verse 11, talks about another time when they got together away. They spent some time together. Kind of a second honeymoon. Chapter 7, verse 11, went down to the orchard. Come back, come back. See, they're spending time together. There's a relationship that's developed by time spent together. And that affection is what's driving this desire. They're complimenting each other. They're praising each other. They're kind in their verbal affirmation of one another. They're spending time together. And so this affection is all building. It's all part of their relationship. And naturally, the part of Song of Solomon we're all aware about is the physical intimacy parts of the book, which talk about them enjoying the physical aspect of their relationship. Go over to chapter 4. Go over to chapter 4, Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Look what he says in verse 12. This is referring to her purity before that they were married. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked, a spring healed up. That's a way of saying she was sexually pure. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates, your choice fruits, henna with nard plants. He goes on to describe how she's a garden, but prior to their relationship, prior to their marriage, she was pure. But when they are married, verse 16, awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south, make my gardens breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad, and may my beloved come into his garden and eat 
its choice fruits. Chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten the honeycomb, the honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and abide deeply. You see, there's a, there's a physical part of their relationship as well that's an extension of their affection for each other. And that's what we need to understand. This book is not primarily a book about physical intimacy. And that's what a lot of people think. Oh, you should never read Song of Solomon because, you know, it's, you shouldn't read it before you're married. But you need to understand that it's in the context of an affectionate, loving relationship. This is an extension of their affection for one another. So it's not a book on how to engage in physical intimacy. It's about a book that chronicles their affection for one another in praising each other and enjoying one another and complimenting in one another and conversing with one another. Affection and words and touch and all of those things that eventually spills over into their physical relationship. It tells us something very important. It tells us that affection in the context of your whole relationship needs to be the basis for your physical relationship as well. We might say that physical intimacy is a barometer of the rest of your relationship. How well you're doing in the rest of your relationship is going to be evident in the physical part of your relationship. Affection. You want to safeguard your relationship from affairs you cultivate affection for one another number three attraction affection number three is devotion devotion what i mean by that is there is a absolutely committed heart of them towards each other they are totally sold out 100 percent, one for the other a mutual devotion a commitment to each other a deep loyalty and allegiance from one to the other that will not be penetrated and will not change over the course of their relationship we said this in the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians that husbands and wives are to be put together in a strong, steadfast relationship. And Paul in Ephesians 5 quotes from Genesis chapter 2 where Paul or God says, This reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's what happens when you get married. You become one flesh. Jesus quoted that verse in Matthew 19 verse 6. He says in the same way, Husbands, you cleave to your wife, you become one flesh, and you let no man separate. A leaving, a cleaving, a weaving together into this one flesh relationship where you are committed for life, where there are no outs. You are not looking for some way to get out of this marriage. You're not looking for some way to get out of this relationship. You're not trying to exist just within the context of this marriage for the rest of your life, but really there's not, there's not a lot of closeness there. No, there's a one flesh relationship that is close and you will not seek to get out of that relationship. And you can see it here. I want you to see three places specifically. Chapter 2, verse 16. Go over to Song of Solomon. Chapter 2, verse 16. Three times the Shulamite, the wife, states this commitment. Chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. Go over to chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Go over to chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and my desire, his desire is for me. Three times. I'm committed. I'm committed. I'm committed. He's committed. This is loyalty. 
This is devotion. This is commitment. This is a relationship that is, that is founded upon the principles of a one flesh permanent relationship. And there's no way out. You're not looking for some out. You're not looking for some way to dissolve this. You're not looking for some divorce or way to get out of this relationship. No, this is a one flesh permanent binding obligatory relationship. And she knows it and she's in it and she's committed. As is Solomon. It's a complete, total binding commitment of two people to each other that results in this close, intimate relationship. I'll tell you, that's how you affair-proof your marriage. That's how you cultivate biblical, romantic love. Devotion to one another. Well, last, let's finish this up. Number four, reconciliation. Attraction, affection, devotion. Number four, reconciliation. And you know what? Every marriage has problems, including this one. This marriage is not immune. This, this marvelous relationship between Solomon and his bride is not immune from some problems. I want you to go to chapter 5, verse 2. And I want you to see that in this relationship, they had a problem. They had a disagreement. There was something that came up be, between them where it actually caused a, a minor short-term rift in their relationship. You can see it in chapter 5, verse 2. She's asleep. I was asleep. But my heart was awake. A voice. My beloved was knocking. He had been away on a trip. He was gone for a little while. He'd been away. And apparently he came home early. And so the voice at the door is her beloved. It's her husband. She says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Some people think that this was just a dream that she had. But here she says her heart was awake. So she was still alert. She was still awake. She was aware of what was going on. And she hears a voice. My beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew and my locks with the damp of the night. He's come home earlier than expected. And he's knocking at the door. Let me in. I'm home. She's already in bed, though. Verse 3. I've taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? She didn't get out of bed. Oops. We don't know why. Other than maybe she was indifferent at this point, or maybe she just was kind of apathetic towards him, or she wasn't expecting him home yet. Whatever happened, she didn't let him in. And so she's thinking about this, and she knows that, wait, my husband is at the door. And it takes a while to, to kind of register. She thinks about it a little bit more. And she spends some time more, more meditating on this. And her compassion is aroused for him. And she decides to get up and open the door. Verse 4. My beloved extended his hand through the opening. And my feelings were aroused for him. And so I arose to open to my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh. And my fingers were liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. And I opened the door to my beloved. But he was not there. He had turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. See, there's the problem here. She gets up too late. He's gone. He's left. Oh, what have I done? I treated him so badly. Why didn't I get up? So she gets up and she asks her friends, verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, these are her friends, if you may find my beloved... As to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. You see, she realizes what she's done. She, she didn't get up in time. She didn't, she didn't treat him the way he should have been treated. And so she, she, she gets her friends together and goes out to try and find him. And so they ask her, her friends do, verse 10, verse 9 actually. What kind of beloved is your beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women. What kind of, uh, uh, what kind of beloved is your beloved that you adjure us? 
See, they say, what, what makes you so impassioned about this? And that prompts her then to say what she said in verse 10 through 16. We already read it. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among the 10,000. She's remembering. She's remembering what he's like. She's remembering why she fell in love with him. She remembered the mutual love and affection that they have towards one another. This prompts her friends then to ask where they should look for him. Chapter 6, verse 1. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we should seek him with you? Where did he go? And so she says in chapter 6, verse 2, I think he's gone down to the garden, to the beds of the balsam, to the pasture his flock in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved and mine. He who pastures his flock among the lilies, he's gone down to the garden. So she goes. She rushes down to the garden because she's heard him. And there she finds him in chapter 6, verse 4. And he sees her. And you know what he doesn't say? Where have you been? Why didn't you let me in? He didn't say that. Instead, he, he confirmed his love for her. He told her that even though she had rejected him, he still loved her as much as he did the first night that they were married. And he says in verse 4, You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome and as an army with banners. Turn your eyes. And he begins to describe again his beauty, her beauty, and he attract, his attraction to her. You see what he's done? He's forgiven her. They've reconciled. They've worked through the problem. They've restored themselves to each other. They, their conflict is resolved. They've worked through it in a way that their, their relationship is preserved and their relationship is close again. What's the point? The point is every marriage has its problems. Every marriage has its conflicts. Every marriage has its issues. And you need to fight for your marriage. You need to fight for your marriage. Every single one of us knows that problems arise in your marriage and you can either sweep those under the rug and pretend they didn't happen or you can work through those issues. You can serve each other. You can communicate with each other and you can communicate your affection and your commitment and your love towards one another. And when you do that, you are cultivating biblical romantic love and you are safeguarding your marriage from affairs. So friends, don't, don't let the conflicts grow, grow. Whatever issues, whatever conflicts you're dealing with, maybe this morning you came this morning and there's a conflict between you and the person sitting next to you, your wife, your husband. You keep short accounts of those. You deal with those. And you cultivate biblical romantic love. So, how do you do this? Attraction. Affection. Devotion. And reconciliation. And those four truths will promote in your relationship a love that honors Christ and preserves your relationship from the things that could attack it from the outside. How's your marriage? How's your relationship with your spouse? Let's be those who follow these principles. Father, thank you. Thank you for these instructions. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us an entire book of the Bible dedicated solely for the purpose of showing us what biblical romantic love looks like in the context of a marriage relationship. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with your instructions. Thank you for giving us, Lord, very clear descriptions of what this kind of love looks like. We pray, Father, that you will enhance and strengthen the marriages of our church 
that we will have the marriages described in this marvelous book. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.